We're on, all right. And let's go uh, turn our, in your Bible or open your app to Matthew chapter 25. And I'm going to read our text this morning. Matthew 25, we're going to begin verses 31 to 46. Hear the word of the living God. When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. Before Him will be gathered all the nations, and He will separate people, one from another, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And He'll place the sheep on His right and the goats on His left. Then the King will say to those on His right, Come, you who are blessed by My Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. And they also will answer, saying, Lord, when? Did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them, saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. This is the Word of the living God. Let us pray. Lord, we come to You very humbly before this text today. These last few weeks going through these chapter has been challenging to our souls. And Father, I pray that today You would take Your Word and let it sink deeply into our hearts. Let us have ears to hear what you, through your Spirit, is saying to your church. And I pray, O oh God, that as we study this difficult text, that it would be something that would lead to beauty and life and glory for your people. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. This is a very challenging text before us this morning. 
Some commentators and pastors and theologians have actually said it's one of the most challenging passages in all of the Bible. So I thought about punting it to Pastor David because he did such a great job last Sunday. (laughs) Nevertheless, here we are. (laughs) Jesus, let's remind ourselves of where we are in Matthew. This is the 105th week, 105th Sunday that we've studied the gospel of Matthew. We've come this far, and uh, it might be easy for us to forget where we are in time where this passage is taking place. It is in the middle of Passion Week. It's the week where Jesus is in Jerusalem, and He's getting ready very shortly to go to execution on the cross. And we've seen Him tangle with the Pharisees. We've seen Him be very blunt in pronouncing judgment upon the the religious leaders of the day. Now we've seen Him take the disciples away by themselves, and He's been teaching them for some time now, and He's he's prophesied to them. He's prophesied judgment on Jerusalem itself and the temple. He's prophesied His his return that would, would happen one day, and that return would eventually bring final judgment. And so the theme really has been judgment. And in this theme and in this understanding of, of the, 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 the importance of being ready for His return, we've been admonished over and over again in the past chapter to stay awake, to be watchful, to be ready, to be on guard, to understand that no one knows when He's returning and it can come at any moment and we should be ready. Now in this end of chapter 25, he, he's finishing up this Olivet Discourse, this long teaching with an explanation of the final judgment. It's been called the parable of the sheep and the goats, but it, it's not really a parable. It's more a prophecy. It certainly has parabolic elements to it, but it's a, it's a prophecy of what is to come one day. You see, Jesus is returning. He promised, and that is as sure, more sure than anything you can grasp in this life. More tangible than the most tangible of physical elements. Jesus Christ will return to this earth. He promised. And when He returns, a great event will happen, and that is the judgment. And so we We come to this passage where Jesus is describing in terms that we can understand what it is going to be like. And so in verse 31, He tells us from the start that when the Son of Man, when we've learned already that that is Jesus' favorite title for Himself, He calls Himself all over and over again the Son of Man, and it has multiple implications. It certainly has implications of His his humanity, referencing the fact that He is a fully human. And yet, as the God-man, as fully human and fully God, it's also a reference that takes us all the way back to Old Testament prophecy that references the fact that He is the exalted King. He is the, the judge. And so He calls himself here the Son of Man, and later we're going to see him describe himself again as the King. It's one, the Son of Man and the King. He says, when the Son of Man comes in His glory, when He returns in His glory, 
And notice it's not a secondary glory, it's an intrinsic glory that belongs to Himself. He's coming in His glory and He's coming with all the angels with Him. This is a magnificent, a magnanimous event. And it says, then He will sit on His glorious throne. And yes, it's a throne of ruling. But it's also a throne of judgment. And as the Lord, Jesus Christ, the Son of Man, the King of kings, the Lord of all lords, as the ruler of heaven and earth, having been given all power and all authority in heaven and on earth, sits. He sits from a place of authority to offer final judgment. It says in verse 32, that before Him will be gathered all the nations, all the ethnos, every aspect of humanity, from every nation, tribe, and language, and tongue. They will be gathered, and He, as the judge, will separate people. This is where the text begins to challenge us in our day and age of all inclusivity, inclusivity, in our day and age where everyone gets a trophy, where no one is wrong, where you can have your truth and I can have my truth even though they're complete opposites, and yet we're supposed to culturally receive that as okay. The Son of Man has something to say about that. The King has something to say about that. The Lord will not allow that. No, He will separate. He will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He gives a metaphor of something that these disciples would understand because they might be looking out on a, on a pasture in ancient Israel and they would see a flock of animals. And from a distance, you can't really tell, is it a sheep or is it a goat? I can't tell. They all, they all kind of look the same from afar. But something happens, especially in the winters in ancient Israel, that the shepherd knowing the sheeps from the goat, would take the goats and the sheep and separate the two of them into different flocks, mainly because the goats couldn't handle the cold weather. They didn't have the big, the big woolly, uh, you know, wool all over their bodies to keep them warm, and so these goats would be taken to one place and the sheep would be in another. And so Jesus is just calling out a something they would understand. It's going to be like that. Just like you watch the field at night and, and before the night comes and the cold comes, the shepherd takes these flock and he divides them into two distinct groups. And he'll place the sheep on his right. Here's where we see in your outline, it's, I, I was trying to figure out how to outline this whole thing and it was it was, wasn't coming to me as well as, as others. There's certainly an outline, but really it's all about the separation here. And so in your notes of the handout, you see a big black line down the middle with a crown. This is, this is the king. The king stands in his place of authority. 
And there's a solid division between the two groups. And we're just going to take this and examine this down. There's multiple players, if you will, multiple actors in this story. We see the king first and foremost. The king is Jesus Christ, the Son of Man. And then we see this division that's going to take place. We see sheep on the right and (coughs) goats on the left. Just like a shepherd would divide those, he says the king himself is going to separate, separate people into these two distinct groups, and he's going to place one on his right, and biblically that's the place of honor. That's the place of blessing. And then he's going to take the goats, and he's going to place them on the left. That's the place of disgrace. That's the place of judgment. And he's going to tell them some things. First, in verse 34, the king will say to those on his right, Come. Come, you who are blessed by my Father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. What an amazing statement. Come, this word, it's, it's emphatic in the Greek. It it's a, it's, should have multiple exclamation points behind it of come, welcome, come on in, welcome in, you who are blessed. And that word blessed, it's, it's not the usual word blessed like we saw in the Beatitudes that, that would mean happy. There certainly is a happiness to it, but it literally means those who have favor. Those who are favored by God, favored by my Father, come. And so there's this hearty welcome, a flinging wide of the doors and saying, come on in, you who are the ones who have received the favor of my Father. Inherit the kingdom. You have received an adoption into the family. You have been welcomed into the family. And we've been preparing something for you. And notice it's a kingdom that is prepared for you from the foundation of the world. This is where history's been going all the way back from the beginning. This is where God has been intending to take all of history towards. This kingdom where He is ruling and reigning over a people that belong to Him that was prepared since the foundation of the world. As a child of the King, inherit this kingdom, you sheep. You at my right hand, the place of honor, you who are the blessed of my Father. And then He gives a reason. Why? Why are they welcomed in? Why are they favored? For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. We're seeing the basic needs of life that are being mentioned here. The basic things that we all need, right? Food, clothing, shelter, companionship. These are the basic human needs 
And Jesus, as the king, is telling the sheep, I was hungry, and you gave me some food. I was thirsty, you gave me some drink. I was this stranger, and you, you welcomed me in. You, you gathered me in. It's the word sunago, which where we get our word synagogue fung, which means the gathering. You, you gathered me in. I was naked, which is the Jewish way of saying I, I had my, all I had on was this undergarment. And you clothed me. I was sick. You came and you visited me. And that word there means literally you, you, you cared for me. You spent time to care for my, my illness and me in my illness. I was in prison. And you came to me. You came to me. Notice in, in all of these things, it's not just you did these things for me, but you did these things to me. And when the righteous hear this commendation of all of their deeds, all of the things that they had, had done, Jesus is saying, remember, you, 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 did, you, you gave me the food when I was hungry. You, you did all these things. And then it tells us, the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when? When? I don't even remember. When, when did we see you hungry and feed you? Or thirsty and give you drink? And, and when did we see you a stranger and welcome you in? Or naked and clothe you? And when, when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? I, I don't ever remember going to visit you in prison. I want you to take note that it's, it's not the sheep, the righteous, the blessed, looking back and saying, yes, Lord, I, I remember that. They don't even know about it. And so there's not this attitude of, Lord, of course we get in. Of course we're welcomed in. Of course I'm highly favored. Look at me. Look at what I've done. How great I am. No, we see none of that. Their eyes aren't even on that. And so the king answers them. Lord, when did we do these things? He says, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least, the smallest, the most insignificant, the, less, the, less, the least valued, as you did it to one of the, the tiny little ones of these my brothers, you did it to me. When you cared for the, the least of my brothers, you cared for me. Now, throughout the centuries, there's been different understandings and ideas of what this means. What, what is the least of these means? Who are the least of these? And one thing that comes out immediately in, in a lot of circles has been it's talking about every needy person in the world. And certainly there's biblical mandate for us to care for everybody. I think of Galatians 6 that tells us to do good to everyone. We are Christians, and as Christians, we're blessed, right? 
We have been blessed by God, and, and in that sense, we're blessed in order to be a blessing, and we're supposed to have love for everyone. There's also many in the early church, in the first few hundred years of the Christian faith, who when they looked at this passage, they saw it as these are, the, the least of these were the apostles and the missionaries that, that, that transformed the world by going in their poverty, in their hunger, in their thirst, going to prison and all of that in order to spread the message of the gospel around the world. And that, that's certainly compelling thought as well. In the end, as I've studied it out, it, it, I don't know if it's wise to limit it in one sense, but I do think it's helpful for us to understand that he's talking about, I believe, his people, his followers, his disciples. We've already seen Jesus talk about this in Matthew, in Matthew chapter 12. Remember when, when Jesus was in talking to a group of people and, and, and someone came in and said, hey, your mother and your brothers are outside. Remember what Jesus responded and said? He said, here, right here, this, these, these ones are my mother and my brothers. The ones who do the will of my Father in heaven, that's my mother and my brother. That's the one I'm, I'm unified with. He was letting them know. Also, he had already spoken as well about the understanding that, the, that, that he who receives one of these little children of mine, they're my kids. They're, they're like my children, and they're part of my family, so don't mess with them. And so there's this understanding here that when he's speaking of the, the least of these, and he clarifies my brothers, that he's talking about your fellow Christians. So again, do I think there's a call for us to love all of the world? Certainly there is. And we can easily see that all throughout Scripture, but here in particular, I think he's saying those who are fellow followers, those who are the called and the suffering and the hungry and the thirsty and strangers, when you care for them, when you really, really care for them, he said, you're doing it unto me. I see myself as that tight with my people. That's why Paul, when he called himself Saul, he hated Jesus. And he was pursuing the Christians to persecute them. And remember, the Lord Jesus himself knocked him off his horse with the great light. And he said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And there wasn't a response kind of like these guys. Well, Lord, I'm, I'm not persecuting you. I'm going after your followers. <laughs> when you do it to them, you're doing it to me. Truly, Jesus says, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. We see the sheep on the right, the place of honor, blessed of the Father, favored in the Father, feeding the hungry, feeding the thirsty, welcoming strangers, clothing the naked, visiting the sick, 
visiting those in prison. And Jesus said, every time you did that, I know you don't remember any of it, but you were doing it to me. Then there's the flip side. He has the sheep on his right, and the great separation put the goats on his left. Now, I don't know if the representation of goat has any deep significance, other than I do know goats can be pretty nasty animals. <laughs> when we were, when my kids were little, we used to go to the petting zoo, and, you know, they have the little goats in there, and some of them have these little horns, right? And, and those goats, for some reason, I remember several, several times, remember, it was Will, right? Our son Will, he, this one goat just had it out for him. And he, Will would be there trying to pet him, and this goat would come running and just butted him and knock them down. And he was mad, and I remember, and I taught him, let's go tell that goat, you know. We went, you, you don't do that anymore. And he's like, nya, nya, nya. And, then, and he walks away, and the goat runs over, and boom, knocks him down again. I think primarily it's the understanding of what a shepherd sees. It gives another illustration of Jesus as not only the Son of Man and the King, but as the great shepherd. And in his role as great shepherd, not only does he care for his sheep, but he also separates the sheep from the goats. And he says the, the goats are put on the left. Again, that's the place of disgrace. And the goats are told these haunting and harrowing words. Depart from me. Depart from me, you cursed That word cursed means to be under judgment. We see this all throughout the Old Testament. We, we see the, the covenant curses of Deuteronomy 28. You can read all about them we, in, in Leviticus 26, where there were these curses for covenant breakers, and the, the ultimate covenant curse was this in the Old Covenant, exile from the land kicked out, get away, get out, you cannot come in. And so this picture that we see here of final judgment is exile forever. Covenant curse of exile forever, depart from me. Go away from me. And as the righteous the sheep, the blessed, were welcomed to inherit the kingdom prepared for them from the foundation of the world in contrast, in marked contrast to that, the goats are told to depart into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. So you see these very clear comparisons going on between the sheep and the goats, but then the comparisons begin to take different turns here where, where you see certainly something was prepared for, for the sheep, a kingdom, a paradise of blessing, of beauty, of glory, 
what was prepared for the goats. And Jesus says, depart from me into the eternal fire, not prepared for my image bearers initially. Prepared for the devil and his angels, the rebels, those cosmic angelic beings who rebelled against holy God, everlasting eternal punishment prepared for them, blessing prepared for image bearers. And yet we know, if you know anything of your Bible, that that story took a huge wrong turn very early on upon man being created in the image of God. Created as an image bearer of God to reflect His beauty, to reflect His glory, to give Him the worship that He alone deserves. And yet sin, sin came into the world. And Adam fell. And it ushered him into being a sinner by choice and by nature. Ruin, fall, curse, destruction, death, eventually leading to eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Not meant for you. Meant for his enemies and his image bearers and becoming sons of Adam became recipients of the wrath, the wrath that would fall upon the devil himself. What a horrible thought. Lost. Lost by their own doing. Lost by our own choices. Destined for eternal curse. And then Jesus goes on and gives His purpose clause of why. And he says very similarly to the sheep, he says to the goats, for I was hungry. Except very differently, you gave me no food. And I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me. I was naked and you didn't clothe me. I was sick and in prison and you did not visit me. And the goats then hear this, and they're also surprised. And they respond, saying, Lord, when, 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 when did we see you hungry? When did we see you thirsty, or a stranger, or naked, or sick, or in prison? And, and we did not minister 
to you. And Jesus responds, the king will answer them saying, truly I say to you, as you did not do it. To one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. Notice the sin. It's not sin by commission. It's sin of omission. He doesn't tell the goats, you bunch of murderers and you thieves and you adulterers. He says, because you did not do it to the least of these, you didn't do it to me. Eternal judgment, curse for what you didn't do. The passage closes with this frightening verse in verse 46. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. You say, that's pretty harsh. You didn't give someone a cup of cold water. You didn't see a stranger and welcome them, and I'm going to go away into eternal punishment for, for this. You see the two destinies split apart clearly here in this great separation. Here's what I want you to see. The difference between the sheep and the goats was what they did and didn't do, certainly. But why? Why? Because that's the big question. And I want you to see the thrust of this judgment is coming down upon the goats and the blessing of the sheep centers all around the king. How did I see the king? How did I treat the king? How did I respond to the king? How did I care for the king? For these goats, he's saying, you had no care for me. Whatsoever. And so they are sent away into everlasting punishment. Now, nobody, unless you're warped in your understanding, I don't believe anybody just loves the doctrine of hell. frightening. Emotionally, for us as humans, it's, it's emotionally repulsive, isn't it? 
The world hates it. Christians are embarrassed about it, to talk about it. But it's all over Scripture. And though I myself don't love talking about it or telling someone the reality of it and that they're bound to go there, church, we don't determine what is true on how it makes us feel. When we think of the doctrine of hell, Scripture presents it as horrific terms, this eternal punishment, eternal fire, speaks of absolute darkness where there's weeping, where there's gnashing of teeth. It's just horrid. I, and, and as I look at the, the, the imagery that the Bible uses, or at least the language that the Bible uses, I, 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 don't, I think language itself can't do justice to how horrific it actually will be. Just like the language used of heaven to try to get our human minds to comprehend the glories of eternity forever, we can't grasp how glorious it is. And in similar ways, we can't grasp how horrible and horrific hell will be. Eternal punishment. The thought of, the thought of burning in fire forever I can't even I can't even think how horrid But the reality is this it's even worse than how I can imagine it And what makes it worse What makes hell hell a lot of people have said, well, it's because God's not there. But God is omnipresent. God is everywhere. There's no place that God is not. What, help, what makes hell, what makes eternal punishment, what makes eternal judgment worse than we can imagine is it is a place where relationship with Him is no longer possible. And that may not hit you. As you it might, fire might make you more fearful of that. And that's because we don't grasp His perfection as we should. His, his holiness, His beauty. We somehow think we're okay without Him. I'll have Him when I need Him. And Jesus came to do the amazing work of a sacrificial death on a cross where He 
instead of leaving us in a cursed place, became a curse for us. Hung upon the cross as a curse. Died. Was buried. Rose again on the third day, proving who He is. And all in, in, in all of that, you can't take God, God become man. You can't take the Creator in human flesh, living perfectly for you and dying sacrificially for you and say, I'll take part of you. I'll take half of you. I'll take you when I'm at my lowest. But then when I get better, Goodbye. He is Lord. And as Lord, He's Savior. And as Savior, He is to be loved and worshipped and obeyed. When we look at how horrid hell is in our finite minds and we begin to judge God for does the punishment fit the crime, that's because we don't have a high enough view of God, nor a deep enough view of sin. See, the level of the punishment the level of the judgment is poured out based upon the magnitude of the one sinned against. And so the goats are sent away. Depart from me. I hope, I hope none of us in this room hears those words. Depart from me. You cursed And these will go away into eternal punishment, but, and I love it when Scripture puts a but in things like this, <laughs> because it gives us hope, but the righteous into eternal life. So again, what is the difference? What's the difference between the sheep and the goats? The difference between the sheep and the goats, according to this passage, is what they did and didn't do. And that's clear. But there's a key. And the key that we've already spoken of here is grace. You say, I don't see that in this passage anywhere. I don't see the grace of God. It's all over this passage. If you look at verse 37 again, you see the response of the righteous. You fed me when I was hungry. You, you gave me a drink when I, when I was thirsty. You welcomed me as a stranger. All of these things you, you did to me. And they're looking at him and they're saying, Lord, I don't even remember that. 
And the reason they don't remember that is because that's not their focus. If that was the focus of earning this favor, they would have been patting themselves on the back like, yes, I did a great job, Lord, didn't I? They were so focused on the Master, so moved by the love of the Master, by their, their, their magnifying of the King, that they lived a certain way that they, they didn't even know what they were doing. It came out of them. And this, brothers and sisters, is, is the, because a lot of times people take this passage and they begin to look at it as, oh, see, this is works-based salvation. It's all about what you do and don't do. And in one sense, I would say yes, but why? Why? And this brings the, the, the understanding of faith and works together. And Scripture is clear on this. Let me read some passages to you. Ephesians 2, 8 and, and 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. Grace, it's unmerited favor. You don't do anything. To, you can't earn it. By very definition, grace is given freely. Undeserved. By grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Do you see that? The, the flow of the logic here. Saved by grace through faith. Pastor David used the term adopted last week. Adopted into the family of God. Another great term for our salvation. And so in essence, what is this saying? It's saying you're a part of the family. Walk in that. Walk in that. How do we, how do the family members live? This is how we live. And you can do that because you're part of the family. What's the role of works? You were created for good works. Apart from salvation in Christ, none of your works can be good because it's all about you, even your good deeds. It's about us. It's about me getting the glory. And this is the whole crux of this parable, if you want to call it a parable. The ones who, 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 who did the good deeds, they didn't even know they're doing these good deeds. In 1 John 3, 16 through 18, and James, they be, we begin to learn a little bit more about how this works together. And in, in, in 1 John 3, it says, By this we know love, that He laid down His life for us. That's the primary. That's the foundation. He laid down His life for us. And what's the result? What's the response of that? And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. For instance... But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. See, works are evidence of a transformed heart. That's why this, this text, it's all about gospel transformation. It's about the power of the gospel to save people and to those people become his sheep and those people are filled with the Holy Spirit and out of them come works. 
That's what God wants. Works are the evidence of faith working through love. Not faith working through I'm going to earn something from God. It's the response of being loved and loving. And out of that comes my works. This is what James means when he says in James 1.22, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving ourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who intently, who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror, for he looks at himself and goes away at once and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. In chapter 2, verse 14, James says this, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food and one of you says to them, Go in peace. Be warmed and filled. (laughs) Without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. This is the place of works in the Christian faith. We are not saved by works, but we are saved for works. And those works are evidence of our salvation. Now be careful, because here can be our tendency as people, even those of us who really love Jesus, say, okay, I get it, then I'm going to get to work now. (laughs) And my admonition first would be, get to work, yes, but only with a really, really good glimpse of the king. Only as a response to what you've received. Because when when it's a response, you're not focused on your actions. You're not focused on everything you're doing and, and not doing, and, and I've got to I've fix this and I've got to get it right. Get your eyes on the king. You want to get to work? Look to the cross and work from that. And work because of that. It's poignant to me that Jesus is ending the Olivet Discourse here. And it's been a challenging chapter. It's been some difficult words for His disciples to chew on. Next week, we're going into chapter 26, and I want to remind us, why are these words so important? Why is it so important to be ready for His return, to to be careful to keep our eyes on Him and watchful for Him, and to be active from His grace as a response to His grace? It's because Jesus, I believe, had something very clear on His mind, what He was about to do. 
Verse 1 of chapter 26 opens up this way. When Jesus had finished all these sayings, He said to His disciples, You know that after two days the Passover is coming and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. The only way we will serve the Lord with pure hearts is if it's a response to what we have received. And so, application, two questions. Well, one, well, multiple part questions. You can check the box or not. Number one, I am a goat, I am a sheep. And before you check that box, let me ask you why. If you check the sheep box because because I don't want that eternal punishment, I don't think anyone wants eternal punishment, but that's not a good answer. He's the Lord. He'll make demands. Your life's not your own anymore. Do you value Him so much? Do you love Him so much that you say yes to that understanding? This is not intended in any way to be a guilt trip. We don't hold up our works to the Lord as a reason to gain His favor. And these aren't guilt trip based on all the things I'm not doing. This is about looking into the face of the Lord Jesus Christ and honestly asking, do I know Him? Do I love Him? Am I being obedient to Him out of that love? If you answer, I am a sheep. If you answer, I am a goat, let's talk. I'd love to talk to you more about, about Jesus, who He is, and what He's done. And I want to pray for you because I don't want you going to that horrid place. I want you to experience the eternal life of Jesus. Number two, for those sheep, what will you do? And more importantly, why will you do it? What will you do to care for fellow believers? It certainly is part of what we learn in this text that it matters. It matters to Jesus. A lot of you are already doing a lot, and I praise God. And in one sense, it's probably great that you don't even know it because you might reach 
one day the final judgment and Jesus might say something like, I remember, I remember when you, I remember when you watched those kids that drove you crazy for that couple that needed some time together to grow in their marriage. And you didn't really want to. You really preferred to go out with friends, but you, you did that. And you're like, Lord, I don't remember doing that for you, to you. Well, it was to me. Jesus might look at somebody and say, hey, I remember, remember when you gave me that ride to church or to the doctor. Remember that? God, you never got in my car. <laughs> well, that was me. Remember when you missed that important appointment you had that you were looking forward to because someone was grieving when you sat with them? That was me. What will you do to care for fellow believers? What will you do to meet the needs of those that you see? And what will you do to care for the lost? These are works of service that we're called to do, and our works of service are to be those that can only be explained by the transforming power of the gospel. Church, He deserves worship and glory and magnifying to the uttermost. And what does that look like then, Brian? In as much as you've done it to the least of these, my brothers, you've done it to me. Do you care about Jesus and do you care about people? Because that's what it comes down to. There's um, this crazy song that I listened to when I was a teenager that it marked my life in a lot of ways by a crazy hippie named Keith Green. You all know Keith Green? And he... He had the song on the sheep of the sheep and the goats. <laughs> it's kind of cheesy in one way, but it's impactful. Um, he also wrote a song called Asleep in the Light, and he did this medley, and I'd listen to it on my tapes <laughs> over and over and over. You couldn't just hit one button. You had to... Right spot? No. Let me just leave you with some words from this song that he wrote that have been resonating in my mind in response to this, this passage. As I do that, let me have the music team come get ready for the communion. Keith Green wrote these words. He says, do you see? Do you see all the people sinking down? Don't you care? Don't you care? Are you going to let them drown? How can you be so numb not to care if they come? You close your eyes and pretend the job's done. Bless me, Lord. Bless me, Lord. It's all I ever hear. No one aches. No one hurts. No one even sheds one tear. 
But he cries, he weeps, he bleeds, and he cares for your needs. And you just lay back and keep soaking it in. Oh, can't you see it's such a sin? Because he brings people to your door and you turn them away as you smile and say, God bless you, be at peace. And all heaven just weeps because Jesus came to your door and you left him out on the streets. Open up, open up and give yourself away. You see the need, you hear the cries, so how can you delay? God's calling and you're the one, but like Jonah, you run. He told you to speak but you keep holding it in. Well, can't you see it's such a sin? The world is sleeping in the dark that the church just can't fight because it's asleep in the light. How can you be so dead when you've been so well fed? Jesus rose from the grave, and you, you can't even get out of bed. Jesus rose from the dead. Come on, get out of your bed. Father, help us. Help us to respond now through the communion in a way that would bring you the glory you deserve. Give us a heart to care. Forgive us for not treasuring you like we ought. Forgive us for all the ways that we've run into false securities, Lord. Even our own works. Ultimately, when we stand before you for judgment, we won't hold our works out to you. It'll be your work. God, let us respond. Let us love one another, truly care for brothers and sisters, for old, for young, for people that annoy us, people we have a hard time with. Make it not about us, oh God. Make it about you. Change us from the inside out. Make us tender. How can we not be when we remember the body and the blood? So as we prepare to take this communion and eat this meal together, Oh, God, transform us once more to be more like Jesus. It's in His name we pray. Amen.